So I want to talk more about the, uh, the first noble truth and deepening our understanding of dukkha and add to the um, very beautiful morning that uh, Nikki guided us through in talking about dukkha. Again, dukkha is um, a category of experiences, so no one word really does, ju- does the word dukkha um, justice. So one category of experience within dukkha are the painful experiences, the ones that are very hard while they're happening. And that can be physical pain in the body. It can be a visual discomfort, seeing things that are upsetting, hearing things that are too loud or also upsetting, tasting things that you don't agree with. And we call that dukkha, dukkha. So the experience itself is unpleasant. As you're, as you're being intimate with it, it's unpleasant. And so there's a desire to turn away from the experience or to solve it because it's unpleasant. So that's one whole deepening our understanding is that there's no way to live a human life and avoid dukkha, dukkha. There's just no way to do it. You cannot control your experiences all day long for all week, all month, all year and not have to eventually deal with something unpleasant happening and you experiencing it. And we're vulnerable to that. And that's one of the maturings that we have to do is to realize if you hope to live another year, that year will probably have unpleasant things in it. Not only unpleasant things, hopefully, but there will be unpleasant things in the year to come and the year after it. And that's just takes some maturity to not be disappointed by that, but to recognize as many years as you've lived, you probably had unpleasant experiences So as many years as you hope to live, you'll probably also have unpleasant experiences. Chances are you'll get head colds, chest colds. Chances are you'll get paper cuts, small experiences. There might be large challenges that you haven't experienced yet. I'd never broken a bone before, and now I have. And there are other experiences that are much larger that you may not have experienced, like the death of a parent if you're younger. That may not have happened to you yet, but... That happens to you if you live long enough. Family members get old and die. Family members have very hard times, and so it's not your direct experience, but people that you care about are having this dukkha, dukkha, direct experiences that are unpleasant. Depending on where you are in a particular day, you might have more frustration around that. Why does it have to be that way? That tends to not be that helpful to try to dig in in resistance to that being the case. It tends to be helpful to realize, oh, okay, I can mature in the fact that there are difficult experiences for myself, difficult experiences for other people. They can be small, they can be large, but there's no way to game the system that I won't have to experience that. Pema Chodron has a, a book with a beautiful title, The Wisdom of No Escape. If you give up hoping there is something, some lottery you could win, some thing you could buy, some person you could be in relationship to, some workshop you could go to (laughs) to work out your own kinks, that there's some way to get out of having contact with unpleasant experiences, 
the mind is seeking. It's seeking, how do I get out of this situation? The wisdom of no escape means we work within the way things have happened. We work within what's possible, but there's no way to get out of that. You just do harm reduction within the system, but there's no way to get out of it. How many of you have ever had a lottery fantasy? Where you imagined yourself winning the lottery? <laughs> if you haven't, you have a type of internal wisdom already in you. As a Buddhist teacher, I had a, a certain relief when I read a study that nearly everybody who has won the lottery has gotten less happy. It seems like that would be a boon, but managing that much wealth and then the way it changes all the relationships around you is not a burden most people are prepared to experience. And so most people probably wouldn't give up their money. There actually was, a few, there have been a few people who said, it's just not worth it. Most people hold on to it, but they're less happy and they try to learn how to manage that and recover a happiness they probably had before, but now they have a lot more money. There's just, once you take care of the basics, more money tends not to actually make you happier. And yet we all might have those thoughts visiting us. It would be better if I had just a little more. Most people want a third more than what they have. There was another study that when asked, most people said, I'm earning this much, but if I had a third more, whew, then there would be ease. And then that becomes the new norm and then you want a third more. That's just one of the ways that we're constructed. So the wisdom of no escape could be bad news or heavy news, but then you relax into it and then you find that the desperate need to escape actually was agitating. This hope that there's something out there, this dissatisfaction with the partner you have, the body you have, the house you have, the job you have, the hoping that there's something else out there, scanning where else could it be because it's not here is tiresome. Not that you might ask those questions every now and then to see if there's an improvement, but the hope that you can get out of the condition you're in to some better condition that's free of the first noble truth is fruitless. So when you come to terms with that, there's a sort of like, oh no, you relax into it and you're like, wait a second, I'm actually functioning a lot better. I'm not expecting everything to finally be satisfying, to finally be pain-free. I feel like I'm waking up out of a delusion. And now I actually can work productively. Okay, things happen, pain happens, small things, large things, challenges come. But I'm kind of expecting that to be part of the case. That's actually normal, that challenges come. So I don't have to deal with my own disorientation and then deal with the pain. I can actually work more directly in working with the challenge as it arises. So that's waking up and working skillfully with dukkha, dukkha. The other um, part of dukkha that um, I find really interesting and also liberating is this um, sense of where are we drawing our security unconsciously and consciously. So it's not about pleasure seeking, but it's the sense of um, ease I have because I feel secure and unconsciously there's this urge to feel secure by uh, consolidating the things that you feel secure around, S consolidating security in your relationships, consolidating your security that you feel in your job, consolidating your 
relationship to your own body, consolidating your health. There's this, there's a part of that that actually is okay because you're kind of taking care of relationships and property and whatnot. But there's this extra layer that comes this, if I get challenged, I kind of pull in on the things that draw me security. I want to make sure they're there because I'm relying on them so heavily. And so there's a tight gripping that happens as I get challenged in life. And I try to secure my relationships. I try to secure my relationship to my house or my car or the things I'm really um, relying upon. And in a common sense, that's not a bad strategy, except that it's a setup that the things that you're trying to draw security from cannot provide that. There is no relationship. There is no house. There is no car. There is no property. There is no job. There's nothing that actually can offer you the type of security that most of us are really looking for. So again, as a strategy, it makes sense that we try that, but it ends up being a defeating strategy. And then we get really disoriented when the things that we were drawing our security on, unconsciously or consciously, when they change as they must, then we have to go through this disorientation. We had temporary security, hoping it would last. We get disoriented when something changes. There's a lag time between it changing and our being able to accept it. That's a grieving process. Then you grieve and you come to terms with it. Then you stand up and say, yeah, okay, things changed. That lag time can become shorter if you have wisdom to say, in a changing world, there are only temporary experiences of security drawn from changing objects, drawn from things that go through their impermanent cycle. So the house I'm living in gives me temporary security. This body gives me temporary security. My wrist gave me 46 years of security when I broke one day. And now it's given me more security than it did a year ago, but not back to where it was. So this body is not a completely secure experience. My friendships are not completely secure experiences. People change. The friendship alters. If I'm, if I'm wait, putting, if I'm resting upon that friendship and it goes and change, changes, then I'm disoriented around that. Watching my parents age, again, they've been aging my entire life. But it was, um, it was kind of cute in a way. They got older, a little more gray, a little more wrinkly. I was like, oh, they're a little softer, they're wiser. So I didn't really see like the, I knew something was coming, but the actual experience one was not one of all that much suffering. A little bit around their vanity, but they were honest about that. But now that I watched them get much older, there's this deeper fear coming up. And I'm not new at this game, but experientially there's a fear coming up. But as it comes up, I know what to do. I know that, oh, I was relying upon them. That's where the fear comes. So how do I stop them from aging? Where is the pill? It's like, that's not the direction. We don't have that one yet. Better to mature along with their aging process for my benefit and also for their benefit so that I actually can be there and they don't have to deal with my lag time of dealing with their aging. If I can actually grow up with them, then I can be of service to them as they age and they won't have to experience my confusion around their aging process. That's how wisdom and compassion can help me steer my way through what have I been relying upon and then making that shift.
Is this making sense? So <clears throat> dukkha is a, is a really interesting one because it sounds like bad news. It's where the first noble truth is. We kind of slam right into this like, wow, first noble truth, really? Not like there is infinite love, and by the way, there's pain. <laughs> like, boom, really, right into dukkha. And it's quite large. It's not just even pain. It's that there's not a lot of security in this changing world. Wow, you really want me to start there? Whew. And we mature in that, we mature in that. And then there's this paradigm shift. The paradigm shift goes from an old way of viewing experiences through a type of loss and disorientation, and then you open up to this new experience and find that actually life works better. And there's an, um, there's an incredible, boundless happiness and well-being that starts growing out of this new paradigm that you couldn't have imagined. How could it be that if I go from solid objects to less solid objects, I could ever be happier in that? Because that's, I want to make things more solid, more dependable. It's actually, but you're asking too much of the world. You're asking too much of your house, your relationships, your body. So then you relax into the way things are, you lose a little bit, but really what you're losing is your own delusion. But you lose a little bit, relax, and then like a Nietzsche, like the impermanence, like how quickly things are changing, you find this new dance that's possible. And also in dukkha, is liberating. Dukkha is suddenly a source of joy. Oh, I can't expect things to give me lasting happiness. If I could go back to my college relationships and say, I, I really asked you to make me happy. Like I really wanted that good side of you. That's what I fell for and I couldn't take all of you. So that relationship didn't pan out because I couldn't take the limits. I was expecting too much. My relationships now are so much better because I have a realistic relationship to people. I can kind of let them be as funky as people actually are. And I enjoy them, but I'm not resting or drawing security from them that's unrealistic. And so from that, my relationships work a lot better and there's a lot more joy that comes out of that. So then what do we rest our security upon? In the beginning of the retreat, we talked about the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. These are considered three places that are worth resting your security upon. Everything else is insecure. There is this experience of Nibbana, and we might talk about that in a few days. It's a little esoteric but uh, for this conversation, but you can rest upon the fact that there was a being that saw through this, through all the chaos of experience, found a way. Luckily, it wasn't only for that one being. There actually was a path that's walkable. We walk it and we begin to discover it for ourselves, that it's the mind and heart that doesn't cling, that finds security. It finds security in the way things actually are. Another uh, example of this that makes sense to me, I used to be uh, a physicist. Um, I still am a physicist, but I used to be one too. <laughs> um, when uh, Many of us don't know who developed the telescope. We know who the first person who had a patent on it, and most of us don't know that person's name. But we all know Galileo's name. 
We know Galileo's name because Galileo pointed the telescope in an important direction. Other people were pointing the telescope at things they'd already seen, people, trees, villages, whatever, but they could see them from further away. So it wasn't a lot of new information. Galileo took the telescope and pointed it towards the heavens. What he was really doing is pointing his telescope at a whole belief system. The heavens are a certain way. I want to see them more clearly. What he ended up seeing, because he saw things more clearly, ushered in a global shift in understanding about the solar system, the planets, the nature of space. So it ushered in a whole new paradigm of understanding. We used to want to be the center of it all. It feels like that as we walk through the world. The common belief is, yeah, we're pretty much at the center. My country is actually at the center. My people, my town is at the center. And then things are more distant from me. The sun goes around, me, us. That's a very common view. And when Galileo pointed a telescope up into the heavens, the truth of what he saw could not be contained in the old paradigm. There's a belief that anything up in the sky had to be perfect because it's up in the heavens. So when he saw craters on the moon, there went that theory. He saw the moons of Jupiter orbiting Jupiter, which meant that these tiny little dots around Jupiter were not themselves stars orbiting us, but they were orbiting another planet. He saw the phases of Venus and saw that Venus circled the sun. So many things came because he had heightened intimacy that undermined common views to reveal truths. There's probably not a person in this room that is deeply disturbed by the current cosmology. But 500 years ago, it was disturbing. It was revolutionary. It changed the way we understood our nature, our relation, our place in the nature of things. But we've come to terms with it now. In fact, it's kind of exciting. If you look at the Hubble telescope and all that it's produced since it's been up there, nothing but miracles, nothing but awe. I am not troubled. I don't get it totally how we're floating in space. I mean, I try, but but I'm not troubled by it. It's not confronting my paradigm. I'm relaxed in the nature of the way things are and find it actually quite amazing that we have a little dune buggy going around Mars right now. We have the capacity because we have the right understanding of how things actually work. When you go towards a Nietzsche, at first it's troubling because the common view has this unconscious, unconscious preference for stability and things being static. Realize it's not that case, that's troubling, and then relaxing into it and then finding this harmony within Anicca. This is the way things are. And then finding a type of happiness that bubbles up and well-being based on truth. So it's not gonna, it's not gonna fall over with some other discovery. You actually operate much better once you realize things are either slowly changing or quickly changing, but nothing is not changing. Nothing we've experienced so far. The same is true with dukkha. Going towards pain with wisdom and understanding and relating to it, going towards this that there's no security in changing experiences is at first troubling. Then we let go because we see the truth of that. Then something grows out of that. It's like, oh, I'm stopped looking for security. I no longer need 
these things to give me this type of security I'm hungry for. I'm actually getting the security I was looking for by resting in changing nature. They find that I'm actually okay. I'm more agile. So if my landlord sells my house, not a big lag time, a little one, but not a huge lag time because I wasn't expecting it to give me lasting happiness. It just gives me temporary happiness. Same, I can apply this wisdom to my parents, to my own body, to my relationships. When I was um, welcomed to be a teacher here at Spirit Rock, as far as I could tell, people just stay on being teachers here. There's no time limit. So I was like, oh, well, I wonder if this is going to be a lifelong thing. And then I watched myself begin to congeal around that. It's like, oh, that would be pretty secure. That'd be interesting. That came in. And then all these consequences came. It's like, well, what if they didn't like me? And what if they fired me? And what if I didn't fit this community? And then something I didn't even need before that happened, I suddenly needed it. And maybe I had to dress a certain way and talk a certain way so that they don't, that doesn't happen. I watched my mind gripping onto this thing for security. And it's like, that doesn't work that way. You have to be able to walk away from all of it because you never know when it's going to happen. It doesn't mean that you never relate to anything, but you relate to it with wisdom. This is not a secure, this is not lasting security. This is a temporary setup. Oh, when I do that, there's a lot of ease. I pointed at something in the middle of the meditation, which may or may not have worked for you. Um, you may not have been in the space for it. But when we live moment to moment, there's only so much burden that one moment can give us. What gets unbearable is when we link them all together and we carry the burden of five minutes ago and five minutes from now, let alone five years ago and five years from now. That makes the moment unbearable because it has all the weight of all these moments at the same time. But if you come in and actually deal with something moment by moment, there's very little that can be that intense to make one moment unbearable. And so there's this lightness that comes when you can actually work moment by moment. I was talking to some teenagers on a teen meditation retreat and um, just, just for fun of conversation, once they got into the meditation a little bit, I said, do you think you are presentarians or momentarians? Which is nonsense, because those words don't even exist. <laughs> but they didn't know that, and so they began to kind of like puzzle over, like, what does that mean, what does that mean? I said, well, presentarians find stability in being here now. So presentarianism is sort of like, ah, oh, the present moment. Once you're here, you don't have to deal about the future and the past, and you kind of just like, ah, the present moment, Whew, it's stable, it's lovely. Momentarians are right there and notice that everything's changing all the time. So there's no stability of the present. The present is a dynamic, changing thing. And they all kind of thought, like, this is a serious question. So, <laughs> like, I think we're presentarians. And, like, no, no, I'm, I'm a momentarian. And it's just interesting that they were willing to toss it around. I was like, that conversation had more juice to it than I imagined. I thought it would be kind of swatted away um, as nonsense. But to become a momentarian is deeper freedom than a presentarian. A momentarian is actually on the true dynamic nature of what's happening. Presentarianism is sort of, you like being at the beach when everything is finally just as you got it. Ah, Temperature is good, food is good, company is good. This is a present moment that's worth showing up for. I love being present when things are like this. 
So that's presentarianism. Momentarianism is the willingness to kind of be with all the fluctuations and find the freedom and the dance within all those fluctuations, moment by moment. Mindfulness can produce presentarianism. Vipassana and insight, when we come to know anicca, is what develops momentarianism. <laughs> it's a silly, it's a silly uh, exploration of those two made-up words. But in it is actually a little kernel of something that living moment by moment with intimacy and being as dynamic as the changing nature of experience. For me, the, the image that captured this is taking um, uh, a pitcher full of ice water and you pour it through a sieve um, or a strainer. The water passes right through it and can't be caught. But anything that's congealed, the ice gets caught. And so if you're in your fluid nature and have a fluid relationship to the world around you, there's very little that can, that can catch you. But try to find security by, by grasping anywhere, and that security can come under attack. That security can crack and can disappear. And so the looking for security sets you up for the anxiety around that strategy. But being fluid, you just pass right through it. If I had a block of ice and I had a gallon of water and I took a, a knife and I stabbed the water, it would just splash around leaving no trace. Take the same ice, stab it with a knife, I'm chipping it, I'm scratching it, and it shows the history of all that attack. So the f being fluid in the nature is uh, being fluid with a dynamic nature of experience makes it very hard to feel stress. You can feel pain, but the pain is temporary. It's very hard to feel stress around the pain being in your fluid nature. It's very hard to be disappointed in that. So this is, can be cultivated. And the, the meditation we just did was an invitation to taste that. But once you taste it, it's sort of a compass heading. You kind of guess, it's like, oh wait, what was that? There was something peaceful. I was able to kind of just roll with experience. And then you find that other experiences trip you up, but you get a map to like, why am I tripped up? Where am I congealing? Where did I try to make things permanent? Why was I unable to meet that set of experiences? And you begin to look for where's their contraction, where's their clinging, where's their resistance to pain as opposed to meeting it and then finding a solution. That's the mindful fluid relationship to changing experience. And that actually is quite secure. Does that make sense? Does that feel intuitive? Does that feel within reach as a possibility? And that's what grows out of this practice. And really that type of well-being is the flavor of the third noble truth. By ending this craving, we don't struggle and create more dukkha, the mental dukkha, the agitation that comes from trying to hold on to what can't be held on, to try to make permanent what can't be made permanent, brings a whole nother level of stress, a whole nother level of agitation, a whole nother produced amount of dukkha so there's some dukkha we come to terms with and allow to be there because it's part of the warp and weave of human experience. And there's some dukkha that we generate in looking for happiness and looking for security. Letting go of that, we find that we can actually meet the underlying dukkha with more ease and grace and then find that there's a type of happiness even though we haven't changed the underlying dukkha. 
So that's liberation, liberation through this first noble truth, coming into understanding a deeper relationship to the dukkha of painful experiences, but the dukkha that comes around the fact that it's another way of understanding dukkha is that there's no security in changing objects. There's no, everything's transient, so there's a type of anxiety that might come with the fact that things change. That anxiety can be relaxed as we mature our relationship to how things actually are. So we could turn that up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.